Our Old Testament reading today comes from Isaiah 8, 12 through 15. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you should honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Thank you, Sarah. Our text this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 8. For those of you that don't know, our Old Testament verse fits in with our sermon passage every week in some way. It's sort of a cross-reference. So, you know, most of your Bibles have some kind of cross-reference, either like a little footnote or a tag. So we all, the Old Testament, verse is, Old Testament verse is not just sort of like pulled out of thin air. It's connected to our sermon in some way. And it is often the verse that the New Testament writer is thinking of as they write. So they are not just sort of, I mean, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they're just not coming up with ideas out of thin air. They are motivated by the thought world of their Bible in the first century, which is for us the Old Testament. And so that verse that we read, like every week, is a verse likely that Peter had in mind as he wrote what we're about to read. So let's read it, 1 Peter 3, 8 through, excuse me, 1 Peter 3, uh, 13 through 18. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made, but made alive in the spirit. Father, thank you now for your grace. We pray for the illumination of your spirit to guide us through this passage, convict our hearts, and convince us of its truth that we might leave differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, real quick, Cindy, is it possible to like remove the echo? I feel like there's a little bit of an echo. I don't know if that's a, if that's a setting that we can adjust or not. If it's not, it's no big deal. Um, one of the things you ought to have noticed as we have moved through Peter these past couple of weeks is the growing theme of suffering. And Peter is now bringing this topic of suffering into sharper focus, and it'll sort of dominate the rest of the book for the next several weeks or next however many weeks we have left. 
Um, it's really the issue of Christian suffering, and we know that suffering is something that everyone experiences, right? Believer or unbeliever, it doesn't matter who you are. You live in this world, we experience suffering. But from Peter's perspective, suffering the suffering we experience, experience as followers of Christ presents a unique opportunity for us to share our faith. In other words, it is something that Peter sees as uh, a touch point, a touchstone, a, a sort of, um, I don't know, a flashpoint for the faith as people see our suffering, especially for righteousness sake. Everybody suffers, but it's the particular kind of suffering for righteousness sake or suffering for doing what's right. That's another way to put that. Suffering for doing what's right. And in a fallen and broken world where corruption is valued, uh, sometimes you pay the price for doing the right thing. Perfect example is uh, it, may, it may go well for you financially to cheat on your taxes, but telling the truth may mean you have like a bigger tax liability at the end of the year. That's a kind of like low-grade suffering for righteousness sake, right? You're not going to lie, but you're going to end up paying more. It kind of stinks. But, you know, so, that, so sometimes you suffer for doing the right things. You don't, you're not always rewarded for doing the right things. That's, that's a, something we should take away, right? Sometimes it feels like you're kind of punished for doing the right thing. But Peter wants us to see that there's, there's glory with God and there's a reward in heaven for it. And we know that suffering for righteousness' sake is something Jesus himself talked about. Matthew 5 and 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. This is part of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he ends with blessed are those who suffer or are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're blessed if you suffer for righteousness' sake. We've already seen in the past couple of weeks about submitting to human institutions like government, even though sometimes they can be oppressive, and how that is an act of sacrificial suffering service that glorifies God. We've also talked about what it looks like for employees to submit sacrificially and often sometimes suffer under employers who mistreat them. And even we talked about a couple weeks ago spouses, the calling on spouses to submit to even an unbelieving spouse as a sort of sacrificial suffering service that reflects Christ's own service. Because all of these things are opportunities for us to meet evil with good and to answer cursing with blessing. And this is the Christian ethic of loving those who treat you poorly. And this is a key uh, of Christian virtue and what it means to live in this world where people do not repay evil with kindness. They repay evil for evil. Sort of an eye for an eye kind of mentality. And so if, as we talked about a few weeks ago, if in this world people have embodied a sort of love your enemy, it came from here. It, it comes from the gospel. It comes from the teaching of Jesus. And this is sort of a further expostulation of that, that Peter is talking about. It also disabuses us of the notion that we as Christians are exempt from suffering. 
Now, maybe you've never thought that as a Christian, that you're exempt from suffering, but I assure you there are many Christians who do feel that. Uh, or, at the very least, that suffering is sort, is sort of... Uh, suffering is something that if we, I don't know, maybe um, pray the right kind of prayer, we can dodge suffering. And what Peter wants to focus on is there is a kind of suffering you can't avoid. It is the suffering caused by your own bad decisions. And so he essentially wants us to see the blessed witness of suffering for righteousness, but he also wants to help us minimize unnecessary suffering in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And that is Peter's way of saying that in this world where people mistreat you often, um, if you are about the business of doing good, you can minimize the mistreatment from other people. In other words, troublemakers get trouble. And Peter, as we've talked about what it means to be pilgrims in this world, at the same time citizens of this world, as good citizens and neighbors, we do good. We love people. You know, Christians can often be accused of being so, what, heavenly, how's the saying go? Heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, right? We can get so focused on spiritual matters that we neglect our calling in the world to, to be ambassadors for good. And I think sometimes, as sort of like Bible-believing Christians, we, we sort of resist the idea um, that we're just called to do good because we know that there is sort of a shallowness in that if that's all it is, right? There are people who just think like, oh, you don't need all this, you don't, need, you don't really need the Bible, you don't need theology, you don't need all this intricate belief about God, just do good. And we rightly resist that because we know that, well, it's more than that. What we believe matters. What we say about God matters and all of these things. At the same time, the pendulum can swing so far in the opposite direction where we are so sort of locked down in just believing the right things that we don't live lives that pursue the common good for our community, for our neighborhoods, for our country, for our nation, etc. And so in Peter's mind, he wants us to be good citizens in this way. Uh, that seeking the welfare of your city and your neighbor and even strangers um, is part of the good life and minimizes unnecessary suffering, right? We pay our taxes, we, we treat our neighbors right, we don't repay evil for evil, we support the common good and try to live peaceful and quiet lives. Paul even says something similar to this in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Paul tells the Thessalonians, make it your business, your ambition, excuse me, to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. Um, again, in the first century, for Peter and Paul, they're thinking about un the, the trouble of living in a pagan society as followers of Jesus and sort of, you know, keeping a low profile for the most part. You know, putting your head down, going to work every day, taking care of your family, not being a troublemaker. And the reason he's saying that is because there will be times when the gospel gets you in trouble. But other than that, don't make extra trouble for yourself, right? Following Jesus, 
Being faithful to God, obeying the word in and of itself can get you in trouble, but don't cause unnecessary trouble for yourself if you can help it. Let it be your ambition to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands. As we've mentioned before, Christians are not the people in the streets throwing Molotov cocktails through windows. That's just not who we've been called to be. We are not at the forefront of every political upheaval. And especially, this is pertinent for Christians who live under brutal regimes in different parts of the world. And there are Christians in different places who live under brutal regimes because they are um, merciless often. And the punishment for dissidents is often brutal and swift. As a side note, I think one reason that people are quick to protest in America's streets is because they know we don't indiscriminately slaughter our citizens. So, you know, we get activism, we understand that. Some people feel that there are unjust systems and structures. And at the same time, it's sort of the, the goodness of America that allows people to protest in the street because here in this country, you know, you're not going to be slaughtered. Um, but in Peter's time, that wasn't the case. Uh, Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea and Samaria, wrote a letter to Tiberius Caesar saying that he had slaughtered 6,000 Jews for insurrection in the first six weeks of his post. And so this is the mind of Peter. Don't get yourself unnecessarily killed. This is what Peter is thinking about. Live quiet lives, mind your own business, be cool, you know. Seek peace, seek the common good. Who will harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And the word zealous there may not ring in our ears like it would have for people in the first century because a zealot was sort of a, um, a religious nationalist in the first century. Uh, one of Jesus' own disciples was a zealot, Simon Zelotes. He was a zealot. He was a religious nationalist, and they were often caught up in the kind of political upheaval where they would kill and assassinate representatives of the Roman Empire. Barabbas was one of these people, actually. You remember who Barabbas was? He was the, the person who the crowd called for when Pilate said, who should I release to you, Jesus or Barabbas? And they cried for Barabbas. Well, that's who Barabbas was. He was a zealot. He was a religious nationalist. And Peter is saying, don't be zealous for that. Be zealous for doing good. Be zealous for the common good. Be zealous for doing things that serve your community, that serve your neighbors. Be zealous for that. No one will harm you for that. But if there is a chance that even when Christians do what's good and right, some people won't like it. Well, this is what he says in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. In other words, sometimes you will pay the price even for doing what's good. Sometimes. He says, you're blessed, like Jesus said. You have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. 
And he's talking specifically about the kind of trouble that we get for obeying God and for our faith, the kind of persecution that comes from following Christ. In other words, let your suffering be for the cause of obeying God. And if someone hates you, let them hate you on account of Jesus Christ, not because you're an obnoxious jerk. That makes sense, right? If, if, so, if, if people will be offended at us, let them be offended at the gospel and not because I'm a difficult person. I'm just a contrarian. I'm just, I'm just hard to be around, you know? I just, I just sort of stir things up. I stir the pot. Like, that's not the kind of person God has called me to be. And if someone is offended, let them be offended at the truth. Let them be offended at Jesus, at the gospel. I don't want to stand in the way between someone who needs Jesus and his gospel because they can't get past me. And this is what Peter is talking about. People will often hate you because of your moral stance on certain topics. And there's nothing we can really do about that. Someone recently said, I heard that uh, cultural relevance for, the, for Christians is a cruel mistress, right? Because at times, no matter how hard you try to accommodate people and sort of meet them halfway, at the end of the day, once they find out where you stand on a certain issue, it's, it's sort of all for nothing anyway. It can be that way, but that's not true for everyone. And so sometimes we have to, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but we create bonds and relational connections with people. But this is what Peter is talking about. He's talking about suffering for righteousness sake, not suffering because you've made trouble for yourself. Some people do that, don't they? They're hard to be around, and when other people give them a hard time, they play, play the martyr. Oh, God, right? Look, look at how I'm being persecuted. Like, no, you just, you know, just stop acting like a jerk, right? So we're hated sometimes for our stance morally. Um, the simple fact that we don't celebrate the culture's pet sins and abominations will make you a target. And increasingly in the 21st century, Christians are targets, aren't they? Right? Targets online, targets in the media. So much so that the very things that we, that we took for granted as we thought everyone universally thought was evil, you, you feel inhibited even saying. But I think at some point we have to say what we know to be true. At some point we have to call out things that are evil. Cancel culture, Twitter prison, you know, whatever's, you know, I mean, it, the world, things are so wild right now, right? Um, a minor infraction online can get you fired. I just read something, I saw something the other day where someone took a picture of a San Diego Public Works employee. He was driving down the street and he was in his truck and he had his hand out the window and he was just you know, playing with his fingers. Well, someone took a picture of this and they said it was a symbol for white supremacy. I guess the W is white and the P is, or white power. You know, he's cracking his knuckles. And someone posted it online and he lost his job. And the crazy thing is, he's not even white. <laughs> he's Hispanic, you know? And now there's this big lawsuit, but, but that's, that's where we're at as a society right now. And so 
imagine if people are doing, you're getting in trouble for that. Imagine what it's like to say Christ is Lord or that this particular cultural sin is an abomination in the sight of God. I mean, that's, that's a sort of, you know, cultural death sentence for you. Maybe not physically, but in your reputation, you can lose your job. And increasingly, our culture is becoming more and more hostile. But this is what Jesus said. I don't have a, uh, a slide, but Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice. It hurts, but rejoice. This is an identity marker of being a Christian and following Christ. If no one ever has a problem with your faith, that's actually sort of like a red flag. At some point, we should expect people to hate us for our faith at some point. And maybe you have experienced some of that in recent months or years. I suspect that no matter how delicate we are, it'll be inevitable. And there's, a, there's sort of a mirror reflection for Christians in the first century. There was something that was happening in Peter's time. And Christians, or all people in the Roman Empire, were required to burn incense to Caesar as a symbol of their allegiance to Rome. And you had to do it publicly, and once you burned incense to Caesar, which demonstrated that you submitted to his sort of power and lordship and even deity, you were all right. You could worship whatever little god you want, but you had to demonstrate um, your Roman patriotism by sort of demonstrating an act of worship. And once you did that, you received a little certificate called the libelous. And the libelous was something you could take and show that you were a faithful Roman citizen and you can buy and sell and you could go to the marketplace. This is probably what John the Apostle is talking about when he is talking about the mark of the beast. This libelous. Because he says in Revelation, I'm getting off, on, off topic a little bit, but this is just our teaching moment. He says, whoever did not take the mark of the beast, which by the way is symbolic, it's not literal, it never has been. The mark of the beast is not actual tattoo or microchip. You can be forgiven for thinking that because we've all, you know, what is this mark of the beast? But in its first century context, this is probably what the mark of the beast was. It, is a, it was a satanic antithesis to having God marked on your forehead and in your hand, right? In the Old Testament, under the law of Moses, the Jews were commanded to wear phylacteries, or actually it was a symbol that they took literally. And you'll see Orthodox Jews to this day in Israel wearing phylacteries. It's a leather strap around your head, and there's a box on your forehead with the scriptures inside. And then they'll wrap the leather around their arm, and inside of their bicep, they'll have another little leather box that they keep close to their heart. And you'll see Orthodox Jews at the Wailing Wall in Israel with these leather straps around them praying. And this comes from the Law of Moses that said, you know, bind the word on your forehead and in your hand. Well, John the Apostle is thinking of the satanic antithesis, and when he talks about the mark of the beast, he's talking about symbolically, what is the opposite of binding God to your head and your heart? Well, it's the devil's mark, which you take on your forehead and on your, on your hand. 
but it's just a symbol, and it probably was a reference to naming Caesar as God, as Lord. And John the Apostle says, don't do it. So I say all that to say, the, there is a modern equivalent to burning incense to Caesar. And it takes many forms. And essentially, it's signing off on what the culture right now says is good. And often what the culture at this very moment says is good is what the Bible says is evil. <laughs> Isn't that ironic, right? I mean, I mean, this is nothing new. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil. But that's where we're at right now in our culture. And so the culture wants you to burn incense to Caesar. They want you to say, this is good. This is right. This is wholesome. And we know that some of those things are, they disgust God. God hates those things. They are abominations in the sight of God. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so increasingly, we have to make the, the choice and decision, will we stand on the Lord's side and experience persecution for righteousness sake? And he says, you're blessed if you do. The culture may hate you. Your neighbors may hate you. But in the sight of God, you're blessed. There's nothing easy about this walk. And if there is a great falling away from Christianity in our day, I suspect much of it is all of the people who were told that this is a bed of roses. It has always been this. It has always been tough. It has always been not for the faint of heart. And anyone who says otherwise is peddling a false gospel. This is the true gospel. I mean, when people came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you, he said, not so fast. The sort of easy believism that exists today did not exist for Jesus. He said, you need to count the cost. And I say to you, you need to count the cost. What it truly means to follow Jesus, there will be a price to pay. And it's not constant. It ebbs and flows. There are times when things are mellow, and then there are times when things fire up in the churches, in the life of the church. Persecution under the Roman Empire was not constant. It ebbed and flowed. Different emperors, you know, for political reasons, would persecute the church, and other emperors wouldn't. Nero was one of them. Domitian was another. So it, it sort of ebbed and flowed. There were times where the church was allowed to grow, and then there were times where Christians were killed and murdered. And I don't know that I see that happening in our sort of civilized modern society, but there may be a time where, you know, they do the next best thing. They may not, you may not get killed. I personally don't think anyone's going to be beheaded for Christ in America, but I, I, do, I can see that it's a time when we're losing our jobs or um, we don't have access to things that other citizens do or, or rights, our rights are sort of taken away. Um, and this is par for the course. And um, any other version of the gospel that doesn't at least include this potential is not a full preaching of the gospel. It's not the full counsel of God. But Jesus says you don't need to fear or be troubled when you suffer for righteousness' sake because God redeems our suffering. Now here's something else Peter wants us to see. He wants us to see that suffering creates an opportunity for witness. Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So while some will persecute you for your faith and your commitment to righteousness, others will see you experiencing persecution and see the way you handle it. And they'll be curious about it. So what you don't realize is, for everyone who knows you're a Christian, they're watching you. People are watching you. They're watching how you behave. And often when Christians misstep, they're there to catch it, aren't they? Right? Oh, they just love it. They just love it, you know? Yeah, you, one errant word, you lose your temper, you know, you say a curse word or something, and oh, what a hypocrite, and they just, they jump right on. But they're also watching you to see how you bear up under pressure. And they're, they're also watching you to see how you react to persecution even from their own, you know, their own circles. Think about the Romans who were crucifying Jesus and the guards who saw how Jesus behaved, Father, forgive them, and some of them had conversions on the spot. They were, in, they were instruments of Rome's torture and execution on Jesus himself, and yet were so affected by the way he bore up, through the Spirit's power, that persecution. And the same is true for us. Some people will ask us, how, do you, how are you maintaining hope through all of this? And Peter sees this as an entrance for the gospel, an opportunity to share your faith. People will persecute you, they'll sit back and they'll watch how you handle it. And when your hope remains steadfast, even though you may be suffering, uh, this is true not just for persecution, but this is true for when, all, when Christians experience any type of suffering. People are watching you, they're paying attention to you. And the spirit provokes them to ask questions or create opportunities. And Peter says there's two things you need to know when you share your faith. So I have it on the screen, two things. And I've taken this from this, this passage here in verse 15. Always be ready with an answer and do it with apologetic sensitivity. Let's, let me unpack these two, okay? These are application points, these are takeaways, whatever you want. Number one, believers should always be ready to provide a reasoned defense of the faith. The Greek word there for defense is the word apologia or apologia, where we get the word apologetic. And it doesn't mean apology, but a speech of defense or a reply. So always be ready with a reply to defend your faith or to, to, to give a reasoned explanation of why you believe what you believe. Always be ready. Always, always, always be ready. Peter saw this as the duty and responsibility of all Christians, not just evangelists. Well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't see the gift of evangelism. I mean, I don't know. Yes, God gave evangelists, but, but in terms of the gift of evangelism, look, we're all called to defend the faith, every one of us. So it's not like, well, the super Christians do that or the seminary grads do that, and I just kind of like do my own thing. Every one of us ought to be ready to give a defense or an answer, to be ready with an answer. Every one of you should be able to explain why you believe. And if you can't, that's not just a problem for an encounter with an unbeliever, that's a problem for you. It's a problem for your own faith. When doubts arise and you don't know why you believe what you believe, that presents a problem. Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you go to church? Why do you waste your time on Sunday morning? 
is it a waste of time? Why aren't you an atheist? Why are you a Christian and not a Buddhist or Muslim? You have to be able to defend your faith to your own doubts before you can ever defend it to someone else. And it may simply be a small brief statement, a couple sentences. When people come, become members of the church, one of the things the elders, the session we ask is that you would at least write your testimony out. We want to know that you know why you're a Christian, right? Write out your testimony, right? Well, that, that's a part of it. Um, <clears throat> a national newspaper recently showed a picture of uh, a church in Portland that bastion of Christian orthodoxy. <laughs> Portland's wild. And someone had spray painted on the front door of this church, expletive colonizers and their gods. So if you don't think that is spreading, you're, you know, you're, you're living under a rock. That's, that's the narrative right now. Blank you colonizers and your gods. And this is what we have to defend against. And it requires nuance. It requires not defensiveness. And so this is, the, this is the trick of this word defense. Because when we think about defense, we think of like sports, right? Go defense, you know? The front line, or whatever. Or we think of like a defense attorney, you know, like host, you know, hostile witness or something, right? This is not that kind of defense. This is a gentle defense. This is defending the faith with respect for other people, with gentleness, with nuance, with consideration, with patience. And it takes the Spirit's power to do that. Uh, I remember when I was 14 years old, I wasn't marching for Jesus. I was a knuckleheaded kid on the streets of Los Angeles, but I had grown up in the church. And I remember hanging out with a bunch of guys at the park one night, and religion came up, and one of them said, you know, blank your God or something. I don't even know how it came up. And I, it wasn't like I was, you know, in church every Sunday. I was kind of straying. I was a teenager. I mean, I saw, I punched him in the head. That was my defense. I mean, you know, he, he, dis, he disrespected my religion. So I, mean, I literally punched the guy right in the head. I was 14. I didn't know what else to do. I mean, there's just, that's not the kind of defense Peter's talking about. He's talking about a well-reasoned defense, right? God has given us his spirit, but he's also given us minds, right? And so you don't, have to have a perfect articulation of the gospel, but you have to have some. You have to be able to say. And I suspect a lot of it is fear, but this is what Peter says. We have to honor Christ the Lord as holy in verse 15. Go back to verse 15 real quick, if you would. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy um, because he's the only one we need to fear. We don't need to fear man's opinion. We don't need to fear public pressure. We need to fear God. And fearing God, and we're talking about a, a, a reverent fear, right? Not a trembling God who wants to kill me, but like a person fears their father. I had a good, healthy fear for my father as a kid. He was 6'3". I was 2 foot 11. I don't know what I was. He had a big, massive mustache. And my father, in my mind, you know, he just... He was kind of a passive guy, but when he got angry and said something, so I loved my father, but I also respected that, you know, if I did something wrong, when dad got home, I was going to answer. So we fear the Lord, and we reverence his holiness. 
that everything that isn't holy one day will be judged. But he's the one we need to fear. And if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? So as I've talked about before, there was a time where it was socially advantageous to name yourself as a Christian. Those days are evaporating in front of us. And you have to name the name of Christ, not because it's socially advantageous, but because it's true. Because you believe it's true. Because it is becoming quickly socially disadvantageous to say you're a Christian. You are seen as a colonizer. The second thing we have to do is... Let's, let me go back to the two points there. Is to defend the faith gently and respectfully. And that's key for a compelling apologetic. If you're angry all the time when you're defending the faith, I mean, you know, people, they just, they're not going to hear what you have to say. You may make your point, but it's not going to resonate deeply with people. And... Gentleness and respect builds relational bridges with people. Again, we're not defensive. We defend the faith with grace, love, mercy, compassion, because this is the way that God has drawn each of you, each of us, to himself. He woos us with mercy and love and patience and gentleness. Right? He doesn't bash us over the head. He draws us to him with his grace. And God is so powerful and so wise that he can bring you to himself being merciful, right? It's, it's the kindness of God that ultimately causes us to buckle under the pressure of his love. Our sins, our rebellious lives, you know, that overwhelming love is just, after a while is too much to fight against and you buckle. This is, this is what I, I really believe happens in all true conversions. Yes, there may be trouble in your life that God allows, but ultimately it's his love and this is the ethic of evangelism. This is what Peter is talking about. God draws us with tenderness, with loving kindness, with respect, and that's what he wants us to do. You have to see the sinner as lost. You have to see them as truly lost and have compassion and mercy on their lost condition. You almost have to woo them, and it takes prayer and wisdom. And it means sometimes, even if you only have five minutes with a person, you have to pray for the Lord to give you guidance. Uh, there is a really, um, uh, I don't know how good the movie is. Uh, it's a movie with George C. Scott in the 1970s uh, called Hardcore. I haven't seen the whole movie, I've just seen clips. And he comes from a Dutch Calvinist family. Uh, and his daughter has left Grand Rapids to go to Los Angeles to be in movies. And the name of the movie, you can just deduce what kind of movie she's going to be in. And he's searching for her. He doesn't know where she is. He hasn't talked to her. And there's a scene where he's in a Las Vegas airport. And a young girl strikes up a conversation with him. And she says, you know, where are you going and where are you from? And he says... Um, you know, you know George C. Scott. Some of you know, you know his sort of the way he talks. You know, this is Patton. Remember, well, didn't he play Patton? Yeah, his sort of you know gruff demeanor. Now I'm going to you know find my daughter. You know, she's run away from home, and I don't know where she is. And, and this young girl who's inquisitive in the airport starts asking more, and he says, "Well, you know, she knows what's right. She grew up in the church." And she says, "Oh, like what religion are you?" He says, "I'm a Calvinist." 
Well, what does that mean? He goes, well, it's tulip. It's, you know, <laughs> total depravity, you know, <laughs> unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And she, just sa and she says, that sounds awful. <laughs> D uh, um, Richard Mao, who is a professor at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, who's a reformed scholar, wrote a book called Calvinism in the Las Vegas Airport. And it's about how to share your faith. And he basically says, don't do it like that. So listen, there are theological things you can talk about, but you have to pray that God leads you, whether you have a person who's a neighbor and you've got time to build a relationship with them, or whether you're encountering someone for five minutes, you know, at an airport. There's, a, there's no cookie cutter response, right? There's each predicament requires something different. But what Peter wants us to see is that we defend our faith. We see ourselves as defenders of the faith. That yeah, it is your job to share your faith. That when the topic comes up, that you do it with gentleness and respect, and that you even pray for opportunities to share your faith. I don't know if any of you do that. Father, thank you for this day. Give me an opportunity to share my faith with someone today. Send someone into my path and create an opportunity that I can talk about Jesus with them. So this is what he wants us to see. Be ready with an answer, but do it with apologetic sensitivity. And finally, Peter wants us to see, where we've gone over a little bit, our time, but we'll wrap up here soon. Peter wants us to see the opportunity for witness in all of life. Verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. We don't need to spend too much time on this, but we talked about the, when we did our series on holiness, we talked about the role of the conscience. Our first sermon right out of the gate was the vanishing conscience, or the role of the conscience. And Peter revisits the topic of the conscience for suffering and evangelism. And it's important because the witness of a good conscience is crucial for the witness of the word. Why is the conscience so important to suffering? Well, we can say with a clear conscience, right, that our lives are open before God and others. There's nothing we're hiding. And when you are living a life of sin, and I don't mean, you know, none of us sin. I'm talking about habitual sin. You're living in sin. You have an unrepentant sin. You refuse to give up and surrender. You are actively, willfully intentionally engaged in some habitual sinful action, you don't want to share your faith because you don't want to draw light and attention to your life because you're living in darkness. And so this is why a clear conscience is so important for suffering because you can go to God and say, I know I'm not suffering for something I did. I'm suffering because this is the calling on my life and I know that when I can share my faith because I'm, I've got a clear conscience before God. So a good conscience helps you sleep at night. A good conscience empowers your prayers. Rescue me, God. Deliver me. Save me. Help me. Defend me. Protect me. And a good conscience emboldens your witness to those around you. It gives your witness stamina, right? It gives your faith and your witness stamina. So here's an application point. Bold words will not honor the Lord if they're not backed up by a consistent life 
So to be able to effectively proclaim what is true, um, I mean, you can say it, and God's Spirit will use it, even if your life does not comport with it, but it's much more powerful when words about Jesus are backed up with a life that's about Jesus. Amen. I'm not going to get to my last point because we've gone over time. We'll, we'll, we'll blend it into next week's sermon, but let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, this word from Peter. We know that Peter was just a regular human being like us. And as he got into old age and had a few decades under his belt, as he remembered Jesus' words and saw that the gospel was true, and he saw the power of the gospel in the lives of people where he lived in the first century in the ancient Mediterranean world, he was emboldened to live holy, to live faithfully, and to remember the grace and love that he had received from Jesus. And his admonition to us is that we also faithfully defend the gospel to bear up under suffering knowing that it ultimately has no power over us, that our eternal reward is secure in Jesus. Help us to go from this place better equipped to share our faith, motivated to share our faith, but to do it gently, and respectfully, and most of all, prayerfully seeking your Spirit's power. In Christ's name we pray, amen.